Hello, my name is Jean Vaccaro, and I will be having a conversation with Rick Tenenbaum for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is August 2nd, and this is being recorded in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Hello, Rick. Hi. How are you? Good today. Thanks. Good. So I would love to start with some basic information. Can you tell me your age, where you're from, and your gender pronouns? Yeah, I'm 22. I'm from Los Angeles, California, and right now I use they, them. I'm starting to lean into possibly using she, her, but right now they, them. Okay, would you like to talk about that process of expanding pronoun usage? Sure. Um what that thought process is like. Yeah, uh, so the first time it happened is uh, when I was in high school, I think it was my junior year, so I was 16 maybe. Um, Oh, maybe it was earlier than that. It was earlier than that, it was early high school. Um, I started getting involved with an activist campaign running out of the LGBTQ Center in LA um, called Get Empathy. Um, and the people who were leading it are now part of the Relational Center, and they've detached themselves. Um, but there's a really cool campaign where we were, I don't really like the name Get Empathy, but the whole point was to gather people together and have them share personal narratives in small groups um, to just build understanding across different lines, and also the practice of sharing narrative and being deep and real with each other. Um, Like consciousness raising? Yes, exactly. Um, And then it was also fun just because it was about how to craft your story very quickly and all these different versions. Um, So we'd go in in groups and we kept on going into all these like queer youth spaces and running the kinds of workshops. And I suppose as I was surrounded with more and more queerness, I wanted to flirt more and more with they pronouns, so I started using he, they. Um, I wasn't really sure why, but I was just like, that sounds kind of nice. No one used they. Um, that's where I was at. And then I think I kind of dropped it after after moving out of that space because when I wasn't presenting myself in front of queer audiences, it didn't really make sense to announce my pronouns. Um, and then sometime around my halfway through my second year of college I think um, or maybe it was towards the beginning um, I started to realize that he um, well first it was sir and man really just started grating on me every time I heard it it was um, off um, and I started to resent it more and more and more and then that kind of spread into the he realm and every time I heard it it was just like a little bit of pang, and at first I wasn't sure if it was like, do I just don't like that people are assuming gender? Is that the problem? Um, is it not like me, but rather more like a broader like philosophical thing? Um, but then when it stopped, when it you know kept on getting worse and worse, I was like, does it matter? Even if it is like a more philosophical thing, um, it's gonna make me feel better maybe. Um, And I was also taking um, a trans studies class with uh, A.J. Lewis, who's also part of the project. That's why I'm brought on to the Trans Oral History Project. Um, 
and in his class I learned about all these different formations and understandings of trans and gender nonconformity um, and you know how it doesn't have to be a oh I felt this way my entire life it's like this core being that's so certain um, and that like freedom to be uncertain and still go for a change of gender um, helped me a lot so then I started going by they them and um, I was at Grinnell College which is like a small liberal arts college in central Iowa um, of like 1600 people uh, we like to think we're very you know leftist if not liberal um, I guess the opposite um, and so like gender pronouns were actually like really really respected there and um, I struggled because in my head I kept on misgendering myself for about a year um, and I was like damn it does that mean that like it's not really true but then I'm like okay no I refer to myself more than anyone else in my life uh, with my little inner voice so it's fine um, and I guess I felt pretty comfortable there um, when people use it it feels like mostly right um, but because it's never like fit totally, part of me wants to now think about flirting with she. Um, and I don't know if that would actually help. Um, I'm thinking about just trying it with some friends. Um, but. So when you say you misgendered yourself for about a year, do you mean in your head or in the way that you spoke to people and expressed yourself to others? Yeah. Um. I think when I vocalized it, I was pretty consistent in using they. Um, it was just my like inner voice, my inner monologue. And it got especially bad when I was referring to myself in my own head from someone else's point of view, so like imagining someone else refer to me. Um, that's when most of the misgendering happened, which was a weird aspect. And then I started to get like mad at like other people when they were just in my head. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think I grew a lot of sensitivity around it because of that, because I was getting so mad at myself and misgendering myself through other people that when they like even hesitated a little bit, um, I kind of seized up. Mm -hmm. So you described having a pang or a resentment when people misgendered you. Do you think you could say more about that? Yeah. Um, it's like... Mm, so Maybe that, just to even add to that, you talked about the idea that gender doesn't have to be a sense of an essential or core part of oneself, but at the same time, there are real discomforts, especially in the social, that we're coming mm. up. So I'm interested mm -hmm. in how you're thinking about that relationship. Mm. Yeah. Um, so... It's it's a bit of a game I think I have to play in that a lot of the times like I very much understand that my presentation is mostly going to be read as boy. Um, and so I kind of like try and do more forgiveness around that. Um, and but then the pang is just really annoying when like I go to like a like a gay bookshop or something or like a cafe and like I know everyone in there's you know queer um, and then I'm in a skirt with like you know like a high-waisted skirt 
and I have my backpack and there's a little button on it that has my pronouns on the front with a little like non-binary flag and then it's still like um oh yeah get him like a, a latte I'm like um, and, and there the pang is just like how much harder do I have to try um, and then it's like this um, goal that maybe I'll never reach which is perhaps why I'm attracted to she now um, I feel like I just have to keep on pushing more into the deep femme just to get back to like a non-binary reading um, so the pang I would say is a driver towards um, some level of passable femininity mm -hmm. um, and yeah it, it is weird that I don't think of it as a core self but it still hurts and I think it has to do with like the repetition of it um, because few other of my identities are called out explicitly um, even like race, which, you know, I feel like I often get like subtle touchings of, of like, okay, I can tell when I'm being like red is white or Latinx. Um, I kind of get those brief glimpses, but it's not explicit. It's never for sure. Um, yeah. Hmm. Could you talk about the way, uh, your racial identity or kind of class markers or things that do, as you said, kind of subtly touch, um, to the surface? are felt in relationship to gender? Yeah. Um, I definitely... So I grew up um, middle class, and then for a stint I was definitely in an upper class kind of um, life, and now I'd say still like upper middle class. Um, and I still get financial support from my parents, so definitely still in that tier. Um, and I feel like oftentimes like that's presented in the clothing I wear um, and the accessories I carry um, and then I'm half Chinese but like almost nobody gets that half Chinese half white um, I'm mostly read as either white or like vaguely Latinx which is really funny when like I worked retail for a while at the cashier it was always these like um, Latina grandmothers who would like insist on um, like their, oftentimes it was like their grandchildren would want to like order for them to me in English because they only spoke Spanish, uh, but then they would insist that they knew that I spoke Spanish, and then when they would hear my like god awful accent, I'd get like these nasty looks of like, oh, you're you're a bad Spanish speaker, <laughs> like you're a bad heritage. <laughs> That's not even fair. <laughs> um, I I struggle with knowing where what I'm being judged on, especially, it's like, it's been very apparent this summer living in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, um, where it's like definitely a lower income neighborhood. I think it's one of the three lowest income neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Um, and it's uh, like almost all black and then white um, Hasidic Jew. Jewish, um, specifically I think it's Chabad Lubavitch, and I like really can't tell walking around how I'm being perceived, whether it's just like the fact that I'm white and don't look Hasidic Jew, so like I'm a bit of an outlier there, 
um, or that I'm like wearing a skirt and have a beard, um, or the fact that it looks like I have money. Um, but regardless, I, I definitely feel estranged a little bit, and I, I know that people are a bit uncomfortable, but I also know that like that whiteness and money shields me from a lot of shit that I would otherwise get from wearing a skirt. Um, so it's like, I think people don't engage me on the street as much uh, because of like the mixture of those three, um, which makes me alienated, but at the same time, I'm not receiving shit very often, which I'm grateful for, so I, I don't know. Honestly, sometimes like, um, because I feel like I'm like denied a feminine look a lot of the time, I especially get annoyed when like, I don't know, I think it was like Teen Vogue or something where like, oh yeah, look at these boys wearing skirts, it's like fashion now. That pissed me off, because I'm like, I, I don't want to be like one of those like white hipster boys wearing a skirt for like a fashion and a statement. Because um, then I feel like that brings me farther from a feminine reading too. Um, so, oh, I had a point there. Um, yeah, okay. Sometimes I really wish I would get almost like catcalled more or harassed or just something because it's an indicator that on some level my femininity is working. Um, and I don't know if it's like mostly that or like my, you know, more masochistic desires um, at play to just kind of get beat up a little bit, but... It's also never happened to me. Um, yeah. How do you understand your fashion, which I can account for our listeners is excellent, <laughs> in relationship to your gender, racial, and class identity, and how that has evolved from what sounds like a very, you know, a young kind of high school experience growing up in Los Angeles as a part of a queer community to being in college in a very small kind of rural white space and then being in New York City this summer. Right. Kind of how you're talking a lot about how people look at you and how it feels to be sometimes seen and sometimes unseen. And I'm wondering what your relationship to your, your amazing fashion sense and mm -hmm. your clothes is and how that kind of helps or protects or of arms you in certain yeah. kinds of ways. Well, um, so at Grinnell in undergrad is where I really started like flirting around with different fashion styles. Um, and I attribute a lot of that to the fact that the Grinnell campus is a bit of a bubble within the town. Um, and oftentimes we'll go like maybe a couple weeks without ever really leaving the campus. Um, and it's like a bunch of like pretty non-judgmental weirdos. Um, so I had a lot of chances to play with just like really terrible and ugly looks that I kind of had fun with <laughs> doing and I'll, I'll still pull them out every now and then just like ridiculous clashings and I'll call it postmodern. Um, so that, that gave me a lot of room to play and experiment. Um, then coming to New York City, um, it's this weird combination of scene and not scene where I feel like so many New Yorkers are just like, they don't really give a shit and they just like look past you because there's so many wacky people all the time on all the streets. So it's just like, okay, whatever. Does that feel good or? 
Um, because it's that, but then also because there are so many people, I definitely get a lot more stares and um, comments. Um, I'm pretty adept at like ignoring those. Um, I waffle depending on like time of day and what my outfit is um, of whether or not I should tune in for safety reasons or tune out for just lack of anxiety reasons. Um, it's, uh, I like it. I really like the mix. Um, I like that not everybody comments and I also like that um, I do get some feedback even if it is kind of negative. Because uh, in the fall I was in Amsterdam um, studying for a semester and there everyone first of all gender nonconformity was not part of mainstream media even in like university in the way that it is here um, so they also it's a gendered language Dutch um, so there weren't um, and they haven't really developed gender neutral pronouns um, so there also by like social norms I just got stared at but like these very silent stares, but they were they were heavy. No one would say shit, but just everyone would kind of like keep their eyes fixed on me. Um, that was extremely uncomfortable, I hated that. I much prefer either like not looking or like look and like make some kind of comment because then I know exactly where I stand. Like if they're just like talking about me to someone, I don't feel like I'm a threat. Um, if they start talking directly to me in a threatening way, I know to leave. Can we talk a little about Grinnell College yeah. and your experience? You mentioned taking a trans studies course and kind of thinking about the experience of gender nonconformity personally, politically, and intellectually, and what it feels like to kind of experiment, think, expand in that bubble as you described it, and how that has influenced you. Mm, yeah. Um, I think studying the politics of gender and gender nonconformity um, has confused me in a lot of ways, um, some liberating, um, especially around, I think somewhere during the course I got this idea of political transness, um, so sort of like a strong divorce of the from the narrative of like some essential self to I'm going to do this for visibility reasons and for just like mucking up gender binary um, and some days like I really rely on that because some days I just don't feel trans enough or even trans and I kind of lose that like sense of self and then what keeps me going is like, okay, but I can still feel good today if I like put on a skirt, have like my painted nails and still have like other mask identifiers on my body and then walk around a park and have like kids see me. Because I know as a kid, and even still today, that brightens my day. You know, I don't see it enough and I really like that. So just that act, even if I'm not like feeling that that's my essential core self, coming through, I feel like that's an okay formation of trans. Um, so I go with that. I know a lot of people would like push back on that idea um, of like, you know, appropriating trans identity for like some political movement. Uh, but I see it as a way of getting by on some days where the gender moves. 
Um, so Grinnell opened that door to me. Um, I think over the past four years I've been there, there's been so much more non-binarism, agender, and gender nonconformity coming out. Um, I think when I was the first year, there was like a third year there. Um, and right now I'm a third year, so this was two years ago. Um, and for them, they had been the only um, gender non-conforming trans person at the school. And now what we're seeing, and like they came out like while they were in school, and now what we're seeing is like first year classes are coming in and there's already like a little handful of gender non-conforming students. So it's been like radically changing and the numbers on our campus have been growing like at what feels like an exponential rate. Like it's gone from like, oh, there's a couple people to now in most of my classes, there's someone. Um, How do you account for that? I think it's the language and the concept of gender nonconformity is around more. It's on the internet, you know, like easy clickbait things like BuzzFeed are reporting on it pretty regularly. Um, so I think for high school kids, um, they get that exposure and they see it and they see it often. It's not just like a one-off thing. That seems like a weird thing that's maybe inaccessible, but rather there are models and there are many more faces that people can identify with. Um, I think that's really exciting. Um, there's like a very selfish part of me every time that's like, oh, I'm less special. <laughs> if I'm totally honest, but it, it's, always, it's always good to grow the cohort. Do you think that the, um, I wonder if at Grinnell there's a culture in every class and in the dorms to give gender pronouns, that that kind of space is made available publicly, is that true? And yeah. do you think if so, does that, how does that influence the kind of ability for people to form community mm. and experience recognition or maybe, uh, as you said, even sometimes a kind of frustration around the way communities grow, the shape that they take, the um, speed with which they move, how to find kind of coalition mm. amongst the kind of a rapidly growing uh, recognized kind of field or change in language. Mm. So first I'll talk about how pronouns are like navigated mm -hmm. and then on community. So first pronouns, um, our school has been like trying to modify this and the student body has been also trying to modify it for the past like number of years. Um, so now like we teach, like during Houston orientation, we go around the room and have people say pronouns, um, which, you know, there's a learning curve too if someone's never even heard gender pronoun before. They're like, what, why are we doing this? Um, and then we've had like scuffles around um, you know, should we even go around the room in introductions and say pronouns because it's really just putting pressure on the trans and nonconforming students to out themselves in a way, uh, but some of them want that platform. Um, so I had a gender studies professor this past year, Leah Allen, um, who just got tenure track, happily, um, and Leah decided that in the class we would like never announce pronouns for anyone and including authors we would just use they for all um, 
which like I was fine with because that conformed to me. Um, but that was also a sore spot because, um, especially trans girls, um, who like fought for that kind of visibility, didn't want to be reduced back to like some androgynous form. Um, so we still don't know how to do that. Um, in my spaces, I say you can um, we'll go around and do pronouns only if you're comfortable sharing it. Um, and then, which is nice because like a lot of cis people forget to do pronouns anyway. So there's like this balance of people, you know, pleading the fifth in a way for various reasons and no one actually knows. Um, so I like that. Um, it's like there's a space on everyone's door for pronouns. Um, most people don't use it, um, but most of the trans and non-conforming people use it. And it's cool because, you know, especially if you're walking down a new area and you see, like, they pronouns, it's like, ah, <laughs> maybe I should talk to you. Um, and so that's where the community formation comes in. You think that at a small college of 1600 and, like, a queer community of maybe, okay, we're a pretty queer school, but I would say, I don't know, 200 students maybe. Um, you'd think that community formation would happen, especially because we even have like a space for it called the Stonewall Resource Center. Um, but it's, it's really fractured and trying. Um, we had a trans advocacy group, but it was mostly AFAB people, which felt quite alienating. It was also like all the queer groups were incredibly white, except for the QPOC group. Um, so it was very stratified in that way. Did you join either group? Uh, yes. And, um... Which one? QPOC timing didn't work for me. I've also had, like, a trying relationship with race, because on one end, I'm trying to embrace Chinese culture, and, like, I have a lot of memories with it and experience with it. Um, and it feels erased all the time, but also... I'm like, okay, most of the time I have white passing privilege. Um, what does that mean to enter a Q-Box space? Um, I've been told I'm welcome. Everyone's been very welcoming. Um, but that's my own thing I have to get over. Um, so I went to like one of those meetings and then the trans advocacy group, I went to a few, but without people who know how to facilitate a group well, and I think this is the case in most college campuses, um, it can turn into a fest of complaining and then people like, you know, someone shares one story of like being heard in this way and someone else shares another story of being heard in this way, um, which I think is good to be able to voice that with people who understand, um, but it becomes very unproductive very fast when it's just a lot of people voicing negatives and complaints without having a space to work through things and maybe explore like what solutions, and maybe there aren't solutions, but just the act of like attending to one person at a time I think is really important. Um, so I'm actually trying at my school to, because I have background in peer support therapy and group facilitation, um, I'm trying to teach people like practices to take. Like if someone just shared a very deep story, then someone else is trying to relate to them, but then goes into their own deep story as kind of like this person who just shared that first one is now feeling kind of like exposed and vulnerable and they didn't actually get feedback because now the attention's on someone else. Um, so trying to intervene on that. Um, and that gets frustrating, especially when I don't lead the group. I don't feel like I have the authority to butt in. So I don't go to many. 
Um, yeah, it, it's hard to find community because it is a small place and people have like their small friend groups. Especially because like all the queer people are very different. No one actually, you know, wants to be friends with each other just based on, oh, you're non-binary too? Okay, what do you like? Oh, we have no interest in common. Have um, you experienced at Grinnell what has been sort of reported in the media and in the left a kind of anxiety around PCness and the way that gender has been handled? And I'm sure you've read about what happened at Reed College with Kimberly Pierce's visit, who directed Boys Don't Cry. Oh, Did no, you I didn't hear about, about that. Oh, okay. Well, we don't have to talk about it, but she came to do a visit and there was a you know a big protest against her by students and there's been sort of a conflict in the media around what's PC, what's censorship, and uh, kind of a policing and surveillance around language, you mm. know, at, at quite liberal or like left schools. Yeah, it's, uh, Grinnell's definitely cutthroat. Um, one of uh, my professors calls it the Grinnell smackdown. Um, where someone says something and then someone jumps in rather aggressively to educate them on the proper way to speak and to talk about an issue. Um, this is a big problem, especially, you know, because I think it frightens a lot of first years and then it drives them into this and then drives them into the same culture of like, oh, okay, we have to keep on policing it because this is the proper way and all these older students are telling us, um... And, like, I think that's extremely fucked up when there's, like, a huge education gap that isn't, like, the students' fault. Like, people shouldn't have been expected, you know, through high school, especially if they're carrying, like, multiple jobs to support their family, of, like, reading, like, articles on everything under the sun and then keeping up with the change of language. Um, so, um, I was an RA for a couple years, and I even, like, printed out this little sheet of, like, all these, like, fun, you know, terms, all these buzzwordy terms that everyone likes to use, and I explained, like, the Grinnell context in which everyone uses them and understands them, so, like, someone doesn't get, like, totally reamed at, like, the lunch table for, um, talking about reverse racism, which is, like, yes, let's, let's address that, but you don't have to, like, made out to be, you know, to be, like, an ignorant, like, fool. Um... It definitely happens. It happens in classrooms a lot, especially like intro soch. Um, it's a bit of a shit show. I think. Um, I like it when professors or students intervene when someone's saying problematic things um, by more explaining the concepts behind them instead of relying on terminology. So perhaps, what's an example? Um, like if someone uses the term transvestite, because that's all they've ever heard when trying to talk about a trans issue, and then someone, you know, completely, say like they made a point of like, oh, I heard that, um, you know, transvestites are like getting like, now have like, healthcare under Grinnell College, that's great. Um, and then they'd get, like, destroyed by someone, like, you can't say transvestite, that's, like, a totally offensive word, you need to say, like, trans or transgender, like, that's proper. Um, you know, instead, you know, taking a second and being like, yeah, I agree, that's great, by the way, um, now most people prefer 
trans or like transgender, um, transvestite is a bit dated and can be offensive. But that doesn't happen. Um, and I think it's like a point of pride, a point of like liberal pride to get those brownie points of being like the first person to call them out viciously um, and educate them very quickly. Even though a lot of people don't even understand the terms, um, and also they're like gatekeeping on these terms that will probably change in five years. I think AJ once called Tumblr the alien um, queen who births new trans lingo every like two years. <laughs> And I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> how would you, how would you, um, kind of situate your experience as an intern here at the New York City Trans World History Project, where you have been going out and interviewing um, all kinds of trans and gender nonconforming folks, hearing their story, organizing kind of panels and events, and listening to people talk about language and the elasticity of language over the course of several decades, including decades in which you were probably very young or possibly not yet even um, here with us on this earth. Um, and I'm curious if how that experience of being in a different context than the classroom space has influenced your thinking and how you might bring those kinds of observations back with you to mm. the classroom or how they've influenced your own kind of understanding. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so in my studies, um, one thing that I've been like very careful to try and attend to has been like this knowledge that you know a lot of these terms around especially gender um even with like the turn of um in spanish like latinx and stuff um a lot of those are coming from white academia and a lot of people who are like living with the brunt of the violence like probably don't identify with those terms or you know um so when I study it, I try to always remember, like, especially if I'm, like, looking at interviews and stuff and, like, first-person accounts, um, or, like, if we have, like, guest speakers come in who aren't from academia um, to, you know, under try and, like, figure out the context of the language that they're using. Um, and this is the f one of the first times where I've actually been able to do that in practice, um, which has been really exciting. Um, I've never heard transsexual used so much, and I, I quite like that word, <laughs> um, especially because, like, with its medical, like, formations, I, I have an interest in cyborginess, um, so that, I think that's fun. I like the, like, monstrosity that can sometimes be in it, um, like, a, an embrace of monstrosity. Um, can you say more about that? Yeah, because... I think it calls attention to like medical cuts, interventions, um, transformation, um, and I kind of like the, um, I don't know, I, I, I feel for the Frankenstein's monster. Um, I think, oh, some, there's some famous article. Susan Stryker. Yeah, it's the Stryker one. Like Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Um, that did it for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so you were saying you haven't heard the word transsexual used so much as this summer talking to real people. <laughs> yeah, and it tends to be like, um, like I've understood that it's more on generational lines. Mm -hmm. Like it seems to be like people perhaps 30 plus um, 
use transsexual a lot more. Um, like, I've, one of my questions that I always ask people is, like, uh, when was the first time you heard the word transgender? And what did it mean to you? Um, and, you know, hearing people's thoughts and how they've grappled with that language shift and still, like, held on to transsexual for all these, like, various reasons, um, a lot of that resonated with me. I was like, oh, shit, maybe I actually, like, identify in some ways more with transsexual. Or, like, I want to identify with it and move more towards that. Um, and that's been a revelation of, like, oh, maybe, like, the terms I like more have, like, just fallen out of funk, but I could still use them um, and go for that. Um, I'm, like, very, very grateful to not have to deal with, like, some of the supreme policing that was, like, in place. Um, I've heard a few people talk on uh, Femqueen and how that used to be, like, an early, um, like, understanding around, like, the 90s and the 80s. Um, and that seemed like so much pressure, especially because it was, like, a ball category, a femme queen, and you're literally graded on a scale of 1 to 10 how passable you are. And if you're not, maybe you're just not a femme queen. Um, and then not trans. I was like, shit. <laughs> like, no one puts that, like, I have the liberty to, like, claim, like, an in-between category, and I still feel like that imposter syndrome of am I trans enough. Um, but I also understand how, like, that intense, it creates, like, this boundary, and then you have to have a certain intensity to get into that femme queen scene, and then once you're there, I think there's, there's a stronger, like, familial community thing of, like, okay, we're all, like, really just putting it all out there to go for it. Um, and I think that's part of the apathy of community formation around genderqueer. Um, because I think a lot of people now, it's beautiful, they don't actually change... A lot of people I know who, are, who have started identifying as genderqueer don't actually change their physical presentation or their gender presentation. Um, and so it's more of a... I guess for most people who interact with them, it's more of like a linguistic thing. It's just like a linguistic change. And I s now understand how sort of that resentment plays in um, from, like, older trans folks of, like, um, not really doing anything and then just playing these linguistic games. Because um, it's a totally different experience. Um, yeah. Yeah, or maybe that the, the doing happens in a different sphere, sphere and one that has different kinds of consequences. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Do you have any thoughts about trans asterisks and the language of it? Um, I think... It's kind of one that's come and already gone. Yeah. Um, when I first read it, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, but then as I read a couple of critiques, I'm like, oh, wait, no, yeah, I do think that's pretty silly. <laughs> um... It's like, you know, I, I get it as like kind of a bridge to the elasticity of language, but like no one wants to use an asterisk. <laughs> I can't even say the word. I'm not sure if it's asterisk or risks or yeah. it's kind of convoluted. Plus like talk about like overtly academic. That's no. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no. Yeah. So you have been interviewing quite a lot of people um, elder trans folks, 
And I'm wondering if you can talk about that experience, especially as it relates to the experience that you brought through peer counseling and kind of your previous work with um, trauma that you had talked about earlier. Um, yeah. Um, I thought that there would be more overlap with my experience in like um, mental health support, mm-hmm. especially like you know, I worked for a crisis hotline for a while and worked on like storycraft a lot for uh, suicide prevention purposes. Um, so I was very used to receiving very traumatic stories. Um, this was very, very different. Um, there was like in both fields, um, both interviewing this summer and hearing life stories and then also receiving like crisis calls. Um, I think they both play these themes of like heavy trauma, vulnerability to talk about it, um, but then also if it's successful, if it's like a particularly good call or story, um, we move into like moments of strength and end up laughing at some point. Um, the difference has been that with when I was on the crisis hotline, it was with Teen Line, so it was a teen to teen crisis hotline. So my connection with other people were okay, yeah, we're both teens. And so, like, yes, I can understand, like, a lot of these feelings, how, like, one thing feels like the entire world. Um, Especially if it's, like, a first depression. Like, there's no way to understand that it'll pass. Um, So I really understood that. But that was the connection. It was just, like, basically, like, a teen thing and, like, a worldview. Um, But interviewing trans people, when they talk about trauma directly related to like presentation and like transphobic violence it feels like I'm it's hard because it's it's like sending a warning to me um whereas before I could just like relate because I had gone through it but now this was more like looking into like a crystal ball especially talking to all these like people about job discrimination and you know often the most you know the most common topic that's avoided um is like current employment because there's still that fear of what it's going to do if it's out um and as someone who's like considering moving into more femme presentation and i don't necessarily want to pass um as a woman um it's it's just disheartening it's a bit of a grind. Um, I think it gives me a lot of hope that a lot of the people I interview, like I see so much strength in it and um, I aspire to a lot of the achievements and activism that they've done. But at the same time, it's, you know, it's expressively not easy. Um, So that's been really tough, especially heading into my fourth year of college where I'm supposed to, like, trying to be figure out job stuff. Um, you know, I have to choose my path pretty wisely, I think, if I also want to pursue a different gender presentation. Do you think that, and I know you've, you're still really in the midst of it, but interviewing people and talking to people, can you begin to observe how, if at all, it is affected or impacted or influenced your own sense of self? Um, yeah, it's definitely 
I mean, before the summer, I wasn't, I never voiced the desire or like creeping desire to maybe go for she pronouns. After the summer, I am. I feel like I'm just feeling a lot closer with trans family, with folks who have talked to me, who have like opened up and shared their hearts with me. Um, and I suppose it's, I don't know, I, I still have this idea that being deeper in transness means being farther away from my gender assigned at birth. Um, which I'm trying to get away from because I don't think that's a helpful thought and I think it's not accurate, but it's kind of a way of coping and feeling more affinity. Um, it's also like kind of fun, I think, um, to start playing with things on more intense levels and like seeing what happens. Um. Speaking of making things more intense, would you be interested in talking about kind of states of consciousness and changing consciousness in relationship to drugs, alcohol, dance, music, nightlife, all of these kinds of things that can bring us like gender into other states of consciousness? And if that has been a part of your experience? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um... I have a lot of thoughts on this. Was that um, a good transition? Like yes, a Diana yeah, Sawyer was, style transition? Yeah, very sneaky. Yeah, okay. <laughs> very good and smooth. Um, not sneaky. It was just solid. Um, one of my favorite activities is to be just like super faggy and then going out into like a fairly normative kind of dance party and um, be on some kind of drug. Uh, because it's like... I have very little interest in playing the respectable trans, um, and I think being on, like visibly being on drugs um, at a dance event, looking non-conforming, um, makes people go through like several phases of thought if they want to try and like think about me, because on the one hand they're like, oh look at this fool. Um, and it was like, oh, it looks like they're having a lot of fun. Um, are they just like drugged out and weird? Is that why like they're dressed that way? Or is it, like something else? And then like, why are they like alone dancing on drugs? And it's like, hmm, but hmm. Um, I feel like it's like inspires several layers of thought of like what respectability is and what levels of sobriety how sobriety ties into um, gender presentation. Um, and then that reminds me of like when they're like, I suppose it's just like cross-dressing parties or like drag parties that like I think are pretty typical of liberal arts colleges. Those tend to be some of the like, one of the more drunk affairs. Um, and I, I don't think that's something to be shied away from. I don't think that being non-sober in whatever ways in order to feel more fluid in a different gender presentation. I don't think that's like escapism or like just like being in like a, you know, it isn't an alternate reality in a way, um, but I, that doesn't discredit it. Um, 
I think it's very inspiring to see people do that. And like I've noticed that um, a while ago, I did an acid trip with a couple of friends, and one of them I hadn't been out with my pronouns, even though like I'd been out to like my school for a couple of years. I just often don't tell people. Um, it has to do with like being more disappointed if someone messes up after I tell them, than if you know they just never knew. Um, and they kept on like throughout like the entire like day I was being referred to as he, but I didn't care. Like there was no sting, there was no burden. Um, it just kind of moved through me and because the like that gender idea had no place in my trip, um, and I was so happy. Um, and the takeaway was not that like oh now I have to be like high if I don't want to care. The takeaway was that there's that potential in me, um, and I can move towards it. And it's now like this light. Um, that can be achieved because I did it mm -hmm. um, and um, you have a memory of it I do you have an account of it exactly mm -hmm. I witnessed it yes mm -hmm. um, would you say that you know you mentioned kind of an interest in really non pathologizing the idea of um, non sobriety and kind of thinking about possibility and potential or even the a kind of an ecstaticness that might be available through um, altering reality, perhaps through uh, substances. And I wonder if there's, if you think of these experiences being open or if you are attempting toward some kind of position of possibility or the ecstatic. Um, or what, what do you mean by open. the um, what do you mean by openness? If you have a kind of directionality that you're thinking about or orienting yourself towards, or if it's an open field of possibility mm. towards I, the positive, the negative, whatever it might be. Gotcha. I think definitely before like say smoking a spliff or something like that um, maybe you know definitely some of the times I do have like a place where I would like to work towards while I'm in that headspace um, definitely before more intense psychedelic trips um, I might have some ideas of things I'd like to think about mm -hmm. or go towards um, but of course um, I think an openness has to exist there because like I'm probably not going to get there um but the fact is that like there was an intent and maybe i can move towards it um i find that with weed it often moves in the opposite directions of where i'd like it to i become incredibly introspective and i think about i make all these like connections that are poorly thought out <laughs> and i like get on myself for them and then like i'll wake up from a nap and be like no, I'm okay. Um, I think a lot of the potential is in just, you know, e even if there are a lot of, like, poorly formed thoughts or, like, loose connections that shouldn't be there, just the exercise of, like, making all these wacky different connections, it really breaks um, tenal thought.
where I'm like keep on thinking like oh it has to be this one way I have to move towards this one thing um, in order to be okay um, and even it shows me different ways of not being okay that are sometimes interesting uh, because then if I'm feeling depressed maybe I have more ways to move into instead of just like the same cycle of thoughts so even that can be useful um, I feel like I didn't totally get at your question. No, I think you're kind of talking about different strategies toward um, not just kind of mental health, which is a sort of small category, right? But just the experience of like, emotions and how you might use or think about drug use as one of the vehicles through which to manage different kinds of experiences and uh, feelings. Yes, yeah, yeah. And also like on the... Um, and the question of like tapping into like different potentials mm -hmm. by using substances, I don't think that hormones are too different. Um, and this has been like very liberating for me to think about because if I want to try something, um, it doesn't have to go to like a specific end. I could, you know, I think that there's perhaps a lot to be gained from just experimenting a little bit. Um, or even not at all, just like imagining it through different ways, and then, you know, seeing where that takes me. Um, like, perhaps if I try different, like, ways of modifying my body, like tucking, or like, um, I think I thought my nails were, like, super pretty the first times I started painting them and were, like, really high. I, like, really, really lit up and smiled. I'm like, this is really fun. Um, and it became not even gendered, just like, I like this color and I like that it's on me. Um, and so like in that way I was able to detach something that to me before had been extremely gendered to just a form of play. So now when I think about it, I don't feel bad that my nails aren't painted when I'm trying to be femme, because I'm just like, no, I'm not in that kind of playful mood today. But if I want to be playful, I can do it. Yeah. And move things out of kind of the sphere of gender into the sphere of the aesthetic or the yes, playful. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Is speaking also of like alterations to the body, is there anything you want to say that you've thought about in terms of taking or not taking hormones or doing different kinds of uh, interventions to the body? Yeah. Um, Mackenzie Reynolds kind of rocked my world when I interviewed them a couple of weeks ago. Uh, highly recommend listening to that one. Um, I very selfishly asked a question that was like directed at me uh, for advice on the record and it was um, if you had any advice for like especially young people who may feel like desires for certain kind of body modifications and medical transition but are uncertain the response was um, you might always be uncertain you know I might never like crystallize in this perfect like yes I totally want this and everything that comes with it um, and that's okay. Um, you can still go for it. Just understand what's perhaps more difficult to reverse or what's non-reversible. Um, and you know, if you have that information, follow desire. Yeah, and um, that I think that has a lot of resonances with exploring substances. Um, I might be uncertain about how it's going to go. You know, there's always the possibility that it's just freaking sucks or that I get nothing and I just feel a little fried after. Um, 
but if there's a desire that's pushing me towards it, what I've learned through multiple experiences is that in the end, I'm happy I've had them, even like the rougher ones that I wanted to get out of. I'm happy I had them because there was something to get from it. Um, and so if that results in like me wanting like different hair formations on my body or just like a different feeling um, and I end up with like chest growth that I later decide is not for me, um, that's not the end of the world. Have you encountered or interfaced with any medical or mental health kind of infrastructures, doctors around gender related care? No, I'm extremely scared of um, that. Like, I, I have friends that I can consult with, like, who's good. Very few people I know have someone who's good on the gender front, and this has actually kept me out of therapy for the past few years. Like, I've known that I should definitely be seeing a therapist at this point um, for, like, things beyond gender, but because I know gender is going to have to play some part in that discussion, um, I don't want to pay someone a few hundred dollars over a few weeks just to get to a certain point and then have them be bad. Um, so, I yeah, that, like, potential of things falling apart, which I think is the norm to happen when people want to talk about trans stuff, especially in, uh, like, small-town Iowa. Iowa's 50th out of 50 states um, for mental health care and services. Um, so then, like, trying to find a specialist, you know, it's just not there. So, um, yes, yeah, things like that. And I know this happens with a lot of my friends, too, not to mention the basic cost of it um, has kept a lot of us out of therapy, which has made it so crucial that we have these sort of, like, affinity groups to talk about things. But then again, because we don't actually have the training to field such a group therapy session, um, I think a lot of people end up feeling worse going out of those groups. Um, I think the solution there, again, like, there's a lot of pushes at my college to get better therapists, to get, like, because we have a fuck ton of money. We have, like, a over $1 billion endowment. We're one of the richest colleges in the nation for a school of 1600 in central Iowa. Um, we should be able to do a lot. Um, but the reality is very few people want to live there, um, especially psychiatrists who can get money and move somewhere where they want to live because there's a national shortage. So I don't think the solution is necessarily in getting better institutional support. I definitely commend my friends who are fighting for that, but I'm more about how do we get our students trained. Plus, like, most students like want to talk to students anyway, more so than a therapist. So how do we give each other the tools to do it when we're already doing it? Yeah. But I think that message is lost, and I think that's part of, like, the liberalism of, like, um, liberal politics of college students being like, the institution should be taking care of us better, we need to fight and push the institution to do this, yada, yada, yada. Like, yes, they should be doing more, but also there are more victories to be had. I'm imagining a lot of what you encountered this summer in talking to folks, especially your elders, is kind of a sense of networks of survival resilience and work outside of a system, a system that can be kind of insufficient mm. and wondering how you'll take those lessons back with you to 
the classroom to your communities there and beyond and if there's any other kind of final thoughts that you might have that you want to make sure you share with yeah. us on the record yeah um so for what I'll take back um this is something that I started moving more towards when I was in Amsterdam where they were very very okay I guess there weren't very few trans and non-conforming people but Okay, there were a few, but I'm also used to that in Iowa. Um, but something about being a bigger city and still having a very small cohort pushed me towards really just like emphasizing care for trans people. Especially when I saw like legibly trans femmes. Um, like I might make sure that I'm on like the same block as them. Um, just in case like something happens, that there would be some kind of like team there. Um, and I think talking with elders and learning how like these tight community formations and this closeness, um, even though there seems to always be like some levels of like bickering within trans groups, um, it's still so important to stay close and stay connected, um, even if like politics clash, even if desires clash. Um, because it's, yeah, it's survival, it's safety, it's group knowledge. That's how you learn about, like, good support care and resources that are available. And I think pulling those resources is so important. So I'll be going back to Iowa with a more focus on that. Um, even, like, in my walking around streets, again, like, if I see especially, like, black trans women who are legible as trans, um, I hope I'm not creepy, but sometimes, like, if... Like, they diverge, but, like, it's still somewhat on the way where I'm headed. I'll just kind of walk near them um, and be ready to kind of, like, fight. Um, especially if, like, cops are around. And, like, I feel like I have to leverage my whiteness. Um, yeah. I think... I think that's all. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for talking to us, Rick. We really appreciate it. It's been an amazing time working. <laughs>